This is the Lean Discovery Applied Podcast with Clinton Sanko, Baker Donaldson's e-discovery officer. In season one of Sitting with the C-Suite, Clinton and guests will explore the e-discovery industry's past, present, and future, largely through the eyes of the executives responsible for the technology and services underlying virtually every e-discovery project. Hello, I'm Clinton Sanko, and welcome to the Lean Discovery series, Sitting with the C-Suite, where we are committed to unraveling e-discovery one interview at a time. Today, we are joined by Mark Zamsky of Compliance. At the time of the interview, Mark was the COO of Compliance, but has since been named CEO and is a lawyer and a fellow e-discovery podcaster. Please join me as I welcome Mark to the show. Clinton, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't we start just with a little background on compliance. Tell us a little bit about the services, the solutions that you offer, and the company in general. So Compliance is a 23-year-old uh, company with a long history of discovery services. Started off as a managed review company, purely managed review. It was actually founded by two antitrust lawyers in Washington, D.C., who were seeing these huge second requests come in, and they said there's got to be a better approach to doing this. So that's where the name Compliance came from that it was uh, complying with HSR second requests. And they basically came up with a way of uh, creating contract attorney staffing with space workflows. And because they knew the process, they could sort of uh, put that into a box. And from there, it just expanded, expanded to other areas. It expanded across the country. Um, now it's a full service e-discovery firm. We started in the mid 2000s uh, hosting databases for review, mostly in concordance. And then when I joined the company, we moved into a full-fledged e-discovery provider. We are uh, a division of a much larger company called System One, which is an integrated uh, services and human capital management company. So Mark, I want to talk a little bit about your background, because I think it's insightful for understanding the development of the e-discovery industry in, in general over the last 25 years as you've been a part, a part of it, and particularly focusing on how, in, in some ways, things have changed. So if I understand your bio, you worked as a litigator for a little bit after graduating law school, and then in 1996, here you are, fourth year associate, right? Working at a, at a well-known law firm in Philadelphia. You left in 1996 to go to an attorney staffing company. If we were to go back in time and interview fourth-year associate Mark Zamsky and say, why in the world are you leaving the associate path to get into this, what is a relatively nascent marketplace with e-discovery, or excuse me, with which is staffing, legal staffing? It's a, not that sexy of a story, other than the fact that I realized after four years of practice that as much as I love the law, the intellectual stimulation of research, of speaking with clients, of going to court, that I didn't love the actual realities of the practice of law. And I think a lot of lawyers can identify with that. But I, I really wanted to do more in business. I was married. My wife at that time was in sales, and I saw what sales was about and that type of client interaction. It was so different from what I was doing, and I was intrigued and, and quite frankly, somewhat disillusioned with the practice as a whole. I thought it was going to be all glamorous and uh, just like law school with all this intellectual stimulation, and there was a lot of minutiae. And so there was a there was an ad in uh, what was then a print ad in the Philadelphia Inquirer. It said, are, are you a lawyer who's more interested in business than the practice of law? And so I applied and I interviewed uh, at a place that was back then called Wallace Law Registry, which ended up becoming Kelly Law Registry several years, several years later. At that point, they had just landed uh, DuPont as a client. And DuPont had just started to go through this exercise of reducing its outside counsel from, I don't know, 300 and some law firms down to 42. It was this major shift in, in how corporations were approaching the utilization of outside counsel and third-party service providers because they what they did is they narrowed down the third-party service providers to three or four as well. And at that point, Wallace was chosen as their attorney staffing company. And so I was so intrigued what, what the whole thing meant for this consolidation for a corporation and how contract attorneys played into this. 
Um, so I took the job. It was a burgeoning business. I had a great mentor who had been an associate at Morgan Lewis before she joined. And so we had this wonderful uh, connection for the next four years. Everything that we did, we sort of learned from DuPont. And my approach with clients was always about them as the client and their approach to cost cutting and what they did. And so it was just a wonderful platform for me to learn and to get exposure to this, this methodology of reducing cost, reducing spend, and consolidating where your work went and looking at more partnerships between corporate outside counsel and their service providers. That happens in 1996. And then you flash forward to May of 2013 and you join compliance which I believe had been established some 20 years earlier, I think in roughly of 1997. Um, so now you're jumping for sure into the e-discovery space. I'm sure you'd had some experience up until that point. So again, kind of putting yourself back into your shoes at that point in your career, you come in as the chief operating officer of this you know, um, end-to-end service provider. What were your strategic goals? Like what was your leadership focus for what you wanted to do in that role, kind of looking forward from 2013 forward. Coming to compliance was a fabulous opportunity. System One, who was owned by my former boss at Hudson, Troy Gregory, had just purchased this company that was really focused on managed review. And they were seeing at that point the maturity of companies that had worked in the e-discovery space. So I basically came to them and said, we can really build out an e-discovery practice and leverage the relationships that we have nationally with all of our clients that are doing managed review. Because the concept of offering both uh, managed review and e-discovery or e-discovery on before managed review was not something novel, but I felt that the relationships we had with such long-term great relationships and the history I had with some of the people that were currently at compliance was going to be, again, a great platform for us. And so at first, The goal was to bring in relativity and processing software and hire new staff and train the sales team on how to speak about e-discovery. And about two years into that endeavor, one of our clients called us and they said, we want you to do this. And they explained this process, how they could basically sit at their desk, upload data into a platform, take that data themselves and process it, and then move it into relativity or some other platform for review run analytics on it, code it, produce it, and then sort of wrap it up and store it when it was all done. And I sort of scratched my head and I said, well, who's doing that? And they mentioned one company at the time that had actually come up with a process for doing that. And at that moment, I knew that that's exactly what we had to do. That's what we had to build. And that was the beginning of our managed services platform, which is now Discovery as a Service or DAS. And so many great things happened along the way, but building the company was was one aspect, right? That was one goal. Let's bring e-discovery in. And then it was like a bolt of lightning when I realized what managed services could really be when it came to creating a, a, a user-friendly end-to-end platform where the service provider was really just helping with um, more advanced tasks. And that workflow was left in the hands of the end client, giving them much more control and greater control over the process. Because one of the things we learned at that point was that handoffs are terrible, right? The the delays between making a phone call, I need this user, or I just uploaded data, or I need this process, now we need to run keywords, let me send you an Excel file. These were things that took 10 hours, 24 hours, 72 hours, and they caused delays. And each time there was a delay, there were different hands touching. And so we really felt that the fewer transfers, the fewer delays, and the more control we gave our clients in that environment, the more efficient a process that that they would have and we could build and that we could really uh, sort of capture a a portion of the market that was interested in in a quasi-DIY service in e-discovery. So if you now take yourself as you sit here today, looking forward from 2020, 
what should be the in, the e-discovery industry's goals for the next five years? Like, what what should the e-discovery technology community, provider community, be focused on? What problems should it be solving over the next five years? There's some key issues that that need to be tackled. One is security overall, right? Whether it's um, data security, uh, cybersecurity. Uh, security of document productions or the way in which we transfer data. If five years ago, seven years ago, uh, if I answered one security questionnaire out of 20 or 30 RFPs, that was a lot. I don't even get the RFP now until there's a data security questionnaire answered and I pass threshold tests. And I think that most service providers, law firms and corporate legal departments have a primary focus, which is security. But I think there's areas that still need to be improved. So I think that needs to be a primary focus. The second is the outsourcing and adoption of the cloud. What, what I think we're seeing today, especially with work from home, the impact of COVID, is that we need more accessibility um, and greater control over software. And not through old solutions, like not, not that Citrix is an old solution, but it's an old way of, of jumping into a platform, right? That's hosted on, uh, you know, maybe a localized server that sits in the law firm or in their colo. Um, it's not an efficient process. So we need to do a couple of things, right? Outsourcing to the cloud so that everything's available sort of via the web, but locked down and secure. We need to look at more options of making sure that wherever people work, it is secure access and we're able to transfer data and work with data and have all the tools that we need. I think the other thing that we really need to do is look at the aspect of control. I think that the role of the service provider is going to become smaller and smaller, and the role of a hosting provider is also going to become uh, smaller. We'll see as technologies become developed and the cloud is greater utilized, that the power of the cloud is really in like multi-threaded processes, right? So we're no longer going to have linear processes where we upload data and then process data and then run analytics on data and then run keywords and DTs all the you know everything and everything's going to happen eventually at once and so that's going to cut out a tremendous amount of, of service and it's going to cut out a tremendous amount of cost and so the ability to reduce cost and create more transparent more efficient processes that can be controlled by in-house counsel before it ever goes to a service provider, before it ever goes to outside counsel. I think that's gonna be critical and I think that's where we're headed. So increasing over the next five years, both the security of the data, the underlying data, as well as the <clears throat> control of the in-house counsel over that data in order to build processes that work for them and their, and their in-house team and their specialized needs. Completely agree. And I think that there's there's one thing I forgot to mention, which is the end result of that, which is the more that that corporations, in-house counsel can control their data. I think the the um, a as I said, the less spend, but the more actionable intelligence they're going to start getting from that data. So I think that overall business intelligence plays a huge role in this. I know that so many companies, if I were to say, well, where's your data or how much uh, data is sitting out there with outside counsel or third party providers, there's definitely a delay and rarely an accurate answer. Um, so I think that these processes are going to help um, uh, allow that control, which ultimately will lead to greater, again, business intelligence insight into data. And I think that that's gonna to start to flow backwards into the IG space, right? Where we start to look at data management. We start to look at internal practices. We start to look at uh, defensible retention policies. And so I, I think it's gonna have a, a dramatic effect that as we see data increasing, we're gonna see the e-discovery practice become so much more sophisticated that we're actually gonna have less that goes into the system. So when you talk about business intelligence, you're talking about both in order to get control over the information governance policies and programs within a corporation, as well as potentially ferreting out compliance issues before they even become litigation issues, maybe using it more actively and forward-looking rather than just backward-looking as we do in the discovery process. So I'm a massive proponent of using analytics as part of an IG program all the way through review. We talk so much about 
analytics and, and utilizing them to look at data. And sometimes we talk about IG in terms of data management or records management. The reality is, is that I think it should be a greater focus on risk assessment. And I think that we should be looking at everything that we do as an investigation, right? I look at the power of analytics tools and I, and I think about if we possibly got document cluster of this data set before we ever processed it, maybe we could be more efficient in the way we approach custodians or key ideas or the way we approach uh, our, our attorney conferences. And so I believe that, you know, rather than applying analytics so much further down the line, it needs to start being used much more proactively as data is created, which is why I'm so excited about you know, some of these endpoint indexing tools, like the way Microsoft uh, 365 works with data or the way X1 collects data. I think that endpoint indexing is such an incredibly powerful tool. And then the ability to integrate that with an analytics suite, it just gives corporate counsel so much more insight over their data. Um, so I think it's a, a, I think that's, again, part of the future of this business. So, Mark, I understand that, and you mentioned this in one of your earlier answers, that compliance is owned by System One, which I understand is a integrated service and workforce solutions company that's headquartered in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And if you can't tell any of my accent hints, that's actually where I hail from. Give me a little bit of an idea of how you, as a COO of this subsidiary, communicate about the e-discovery directions that you're going. How do you effectively make that message clear to a parent company who's not exclusively focused on the legal sector. So I'm incredibly lucky to have my mentor, friend, and boss, Troy Gregory, as the CEO. So I met Troy back in 89 when we worked for competitors. I was with a company in New York. Uh, he was running his family company in New York, um, and we became friendly. And um, two years later, I ended up working with him at Hudson uh, when Gregory and Gregory was purchased to be their legal arm. And at Hudson, I met some great individuals, two of whom happened to also now be the COO of System One and the CFO of System One. So System One is really um, a spinoff of several divisions of Hudson. And when Troy had an opportunity to purchase a, a firm like Compliance, he did so knowing how badly he wanted to get back into the legal space. Um, and so System One as a whole is a company that I've grown up with. These guys know our business. I've known them since um, uh, the early 2000s. And um, it's, it's just been such a smooth ride because they understand our business. And now today, we have a majority uh, investor in TH Lee, which is a a private equity firm out of Boston, and being such a sophisticated firm um, in the marketplace, they know about legal, they know about e-discovery, uh, they obviously see all of the deals in our industry going down, um, but we really sit as what I think is a, is a crown jewel in the System One portfolio of companies uh, and having people that are such advocates for the legal business and knowing the potential growth and impact that we can have, not just in e-discovery, but across other areas of the law is, is really just a bonus for us. So I don't have a lot of explaining to do. I'm actually really lucky. So Mark, I love the saying that's attributed to Peter Drucker, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And I, I think that e-discovery is not immune from that, that basic point of wisdom. If you look at your client base, kind of at, at your entire client base, what are the common things that you're seeing your corporate clients measure to determine if they are actually improving their e-discovery value and eliminating waste year over year? And are there any additional things that maybe they should be looking at going forward to start measuring so they can get a baseline and, and start looking at new metrics on a go forward? I think one of the great things that uh, a corporate Council are doing today is uh, reducing the number of providers that they're using. So whether that's uh, um, ALSPs or law firms or third-party service providers, they are having very limited lists. So they have a much better handle on how much data they have and where that data sits. That's on top of the fact that so many companies are also starting to 
own or manage or subscribe on a SaaS basis to their own platforms. And so this is giving them great insight. And so for one, I think it all comes back to cost overall. For corporations, they are still seen as a cost center. I know so many of them uh, want to try to build back, uh, but I'm a big proponent of starting to measure uh, real data and real data sizes. So I think again, those uh, AI and analytics platforms, business intelligence platforms that are that are wrapped around this concept of cost, right? What was our spend last year? What were our outlying litigation? How can we normalize things and how can we start continue to reduce cost? I think that we wanna to continue to implement data reduction strategies earlier in the process. I think data reuse, data lake strategies um, are incredibly important. And they all go back again to that, that understanding the data today and bringing that back to their IG and um, data retention policies. I think as we start to benchmark things like custodians, divisions, outside counsel, court decisions, all of that business intelligence gives us greater insight into how data is being used, how data is even being processed, how big was the set we turned over versus how big was the set that we produced, and what was ultimately utilized in depositions or in court. The, the more that we're able to use what has happened in the past and the analytics that we've used and continue to pull that back into the process, I think that's where we have to start measuring. So again, data explosion, but moving less and less data into the system, or if it's a matter of continuing to move more data into the process so we get greater insight, it's making sure that the cost structures that we have are not based on how much total data we're bringing in, but really how much data moves its way through the process. Because sometimes you need to collect from a number of custodians. Sometimes you don't want to run keyword searches too early in the process. I want to get the whole story. I want to see who's talking to who. I want to understand what all my potential concepts are, just in case this is a case that involves something that can't necessarily be identified through keyword. Maybe it's identified through a pattern of behavior or emotions, um, things that can be identified through a, a wide array or application of analytics against that wide array of data. And so I think that we look at the way data's move through the process and how much that costs. So greater incentives to analyze data earlier on um, and costs that are reduced because we're able to reduce that cost as we move through. Mark, one of the things you said in that answer was talking about normalizing the different cases. And, you know, that's always one of the things that's difficult because for some cases, like you said, you might pull more, you know, quantum of data that goes into the funnel. For other cases, maybe you shouldn't. And so how do you normalize those different cases as they go through the funnel in order to actually measure the year-over-year -year effectiveness of your programmatic solutions? Definitely a difficult question. And I think that the normalization starts to come in patterned behavior over time. I think that corporations that can truly measure are ones that have uh, litigation uh, that they see repeat itself or custodians that they see repeat themselves. Types of matters, even if it's um, uh, employment matters or breach of contract, uh, or maybe it's sales contracts to start to understand why do we, you know, why do our clients keep breaching our contracts or why are our suppliers not able to perform? Or why does, you know, this one division in ABC uh, uh, area continue to have people that quit and file harassment claims? And so I think that we need to start to look at behavior from a corporate perspective, not necessarily from a data perspective, but it's the data that gives us the insight into actually what the corporation's doing. So, I was at a conference several months ago before this whole thing hit when we had conferences and we were sort of talking about how legal it potentially is becoming the tail wagging the dog a little bit with respect to data, right? Do we start programming or building databases around can we get data out if we're ever sued, right? Do we have data retention policies to think about, well, will we need this? If, if we get sued for this problem, should we be writing contracts, you know, more narrowly? And so 
I think that today that's what we're seeing, right? Not that the tail's necessarily wagging the dog, but that the data that's going to come out of litigation is going to help us normalize business practices, make adjustments. And I think it's great corporations that are going to have that communication from the business units to legal to IT and really be able to understand what does that data mean for our actual business, the business that makes us money. If I understand that, Mark, then you're, you're espousing a view where instead of e-discovery being a one-way street where it's coming out of the corporation and just informing the litigation and legal decisions that get made, it actually would start feeding back into the company to allow an understanding of business practice and business intelligence applied against the company for understanding their activity within the company and where most of the data is being generated and maybe even where maybe some proactive problems reside. A thousand percent. I think that if we don't do that, we're destined to repeat the same mistakes, right? Which is see the same type of litigation come out. And what's interesting is that businesses are already doing this. We're using our sales CRM databases. We're using sales and regional data or customer data. And we're going back and we're saying, okay, sales team, this is what we should be focusing on because for the last six months, this is what people have been asking for. And so we're, we've created that cycle in business with other teams, right? What's our marketing impact? What kind of social media uh, got the best response? We need to be doing that with legal as well from a corporate perspective and feeding that back into the company. In the last couple of weeks, I've listened to uh, a few of your uh, podcasts with Mary Mack of the EDRMs, which is uh, cleverly titled Musings with Mark and Mary. Uh, so recently you and Mary were joined by Jay Lieb of NextLP to talk a lot about the story engine of NextLP and how, and how it helps you find the story earlier and the sentiment analysis that it can do. As an e-discovery lawyer, that's one of the things that we're always focused on in our team. It's not just finding the responsive documents, but actually finding the documents that make a dispositional difference in the case, the dispositionally important documents. When you look at the suite of tools that's available, if you were talking to in-house counsel and advising them on not only what tools they should use, but how they should make those tools get used effectively in their cases by their outside counsel, how would you, how would you advise them to do that? You know, kind of look at their portfolio and say, this is how we're going to really use these tools effectively with our existing outside counsel. So when it comes to tools, uh, again, I want to go back to analytics and, and, and sort of what NextLP does and so many other great analytics platforms. But text and metadata is what these guys are truly analyzing. It's where their algorithms work best. And so we, we talked a little bit about endpoint indexing and that ability um, to either pre-collection or during collection have an ECA process where we actually take text and metadata. Old ECA process was let's throw keywords against it and let's see sort of what comes out and what do we actually need to collect or what do we need to go back and get the natives for? I think that the way to really utilize those tools is at the earliest point in the process, pre-collection of natives or pre-promotion of natives, which take up so much space and cost a lot of money, is to really start analyzing text and metadata by ingesting that into an XLP or a brain space or matter analytics or some of the one of the other analytics platforms that might be out there from from disco or everlaw and so i think that that ability to start to understand data and then to run different types of analysis right we all know email threading we even know conceptual clustering but the more advanced tools today are starting to identify other aspects, right? More emotional aspects of data, more pattern behavior in data. And so I think that we all need to start advocating that rather than, you know, ready, shoot, aim, we're, we're taking a very different approach. And again, everything should be an investigation. We should be taking the week or two weeks up front to start to look at text and metadata through an analytics tool to really understand a case so that as we understand the matter, as we understand the players, as we understand the subjects that are involved in, in who we think the key players are, we either expand or contract what we're looking at. 
we, we start to better understand the concepts that are involved and what we should be looking for. Where's that needle in the haystack? Because that's gonna guide us moving forward. And as we're guided moving forward, that investigative period where we take a week or two weeks and start to look at things can pay off across months or hundreds of contract attorneys or hundreds of thousands of documents down the line. And I think that's so critically important to start to better understand more subjective information about our data earlier in the process because everyone's running analytics and they're saying okay well let's do email threading that'll reduce the, th the data count or how much data we have to review but typically those come after we've collected it's after we've processed it's after we've promoted for review and it's so far down the process we've got to just ship the whole focus back so the, the key point is is the time that you do it, and it should be as early as reasonably possible in the litigation cycle to inform everything that comes after it, as opposed to having it be a a, a collateral process and that's happening in parallel with the rest of your e-discovery data movements and searching and negotiation. If analytics and business intelligence and the way we start to look at indexing really has its impact it's actually going to happen before litigation because we're going to start to classify data and documents whether they're risky or non-risky at the corporate environment as i'm typing my email right so i'm going to type it out and hit send it's going to get indexed and i'm going to be like hey red flag this is a document that or a custodian or someone that we need to be careful about or this is a subject matter that maybe we should talk to risk about so I think that's where we're ultimately going. I, so the more we think like that, the more we think about what we're applying to data in other areas to risk and potential litigation, I think the better off we're going to be and the more corporations are going to benefit from utilizing outside counsel, service providers, and reducing costs and creating more efficiencies in the litigation process. So Mark, in a recent blog post, I think by Sam, is it Bach of Relativity, uh, you mentioned in referring, I think, to the COVID-19 crisis that we're in a distinct paradigm shift. So what insights can you share with uh, our corporate counsel about the paradigm shift that's going to affect not only the legal industry and e-discovery, but their management of e-discovery going forward and how they should be looking at, at, at e-discovery and the, and the changes that are going to be necessary? So I think that ultimately, the, the paradigm shift that we're seeing is the accessibility of software. Software providers have focused on the corporate market and they have focused on workflows that are easier to handle with fewer people um, and in a way that makes the process a lot easier for corporate counsel to manage. So I think we're going to see a tremendous investment continued in the shedding of uh, infrastructure and software ownership, a continued um, uh, move to the cloud and SaaS-based offerings. We're going to see work from home accessibility and security start to expand tremendously. And I think that we're already seeing it in the legal service provider market, the alternative legal service provider market, how law firms are treating their groups by either spinning them off or, or getting rid of them completely. But the opportunity to, I think, host data, I think is diminishing, right? So I think hosting costs, they're never gonna go away, but I think it's just a question of who are you paying them to and what's the accessibility that you gain from that. But I think it's going to be more about providing high level service to clients. And I think that's where the value is going to be because ultimately, uh, collection, processing, uh, running analytics on data, those discrete tasks are eventually going to be automated and handled by the software. It's going to be handled as data is collected. It's, it potentially is going to be handled at the endpoint. And so what we're now going to be looking at is who can help me interpret and understand the analytics that I'm looking at? Who can help me make sure that this production is defensible? Who can help me make sure that we're, we've got the best documents to move forward in a defensible position with this litigation, conduct depositions, um, have a credible defense to our arguments, or find out earlier in the process if there's a smoking gun and we need to settle this? Mark, 
in your role as a COO, you have the operational control over both the e-discovery side and the review side of your organization. And the job of blending those, you know, when in-house counsel are faced with the need to balance review technology on the one hand and review execution on the other, there can be those handoff friction points that you talked about earlier in one of your answers. What practical implementation advice would you have for in-house counsel as they're looking at blending those two things and making sure that they're working well together and working cohesively as one unit? What advice would you have for them on how, how to manage that well? So I think my advice to uh, in-house counsel is something that we started off with when we looked at the integration of e-discovery technology with our existing review process, which is start with the end in mind. And the real way to start with the end in mind is have project managers on the e-discovery side that understand review and project managers on the review side that understand e-discovery. And when you start to talk to stakeholders in litigation, which includes outside counsel as well as in-house counsel and business units at a company, what we start to realize is that we have an idea of where things want to go or where we want things to go. And we have an idea of what story the data is going to tell. And that can define a lot in terms of how we approach e-discovery and review. But when we start to formulate our defense or when we start to formulate our actions, being able to bring back what we want to come out of the review or what the data is going to show will come out of that review potentially, is how we should approach the earliest aspects of this process of e-discovery. And I think there's one other aspect to that. And I think it's understanding that service providers and software providers today can do a lot with their technology, right? There are the experts in that. And outside counsel's role is to place the defensibility and legal standards and the, and the substantive and subjective aspects of the law onto the e-discovery process. And I think it's such a critical role that you have a wonderful conversation and not friction between in-house counsel, outside counsel, and a service provider. In this process, they should be three equal parts, all making sure there's a series and system of checks and balances against the other, and they should all play a very equal role in how that goes. And I think we're starting to actually see a shift now, and maybe even rightfully so, where in-house counsel is playing a much more active role, or even giving their service provider a much more active role, and having counsel, uh, outside counsel at the law firm, uh, be very limited to guiding the more substantive aspects of document review, and what the defense is going to be, and how do we get the uh, uh, data presented that's going to support that defense or prosecution of that case. In reviewing compliance's offerings, Mark, I noticed that compliance has its own proprietary platform, which I think you referred to earlier as Discovery as a Service. And you mentioned on a recent podcast that you have an application store where you can you know, go to and just pick the application that you want to apply given the situation and given what the needs are. As an LPO, what is the right mix for compliance on developing your own proprietary solutions and then implementing off-the-shelf solutions that you offer in terms of how you measure that value? Like, how do you get that right mix developing versus buying? So there's so many great software platforms out there today. One thing that we've absolutely made a decision about is that we do not want to be a software platform developer. So we're not going to do what um, Everlaw or Logical or Relativity or Nuix does. It's just not where we play. They've got great platforms. They have uh, comprehensive processes. And they've really thought about the way the users interact with those tools uh, from sort of processing through review through production. And I think they've done a great job. And we're not about to develop our own tool. I think what we want to do is make their tools better. And so what we've tried to do is look at workflow and what do our clients want to see in terms of workflow and then what tools do they want? And so discovery as a service as a platform um, is something that allows our clients to sort of utilize relativity or Nuix without necessarily owning it, have uh, uh, a defined and dedicated infrastructure 
without having to maintain their own hardware. It gives them the option to choose from a number of different tools and, and platforms because I think we want a sort of platform extensibility. We want a, an ecosystem for our tools. And so we want it to be able to handle a subpoena request or a large second request. We want it to be able to handle um, contracts and we want it to be able to handle huge litigation. Uh, so big, small, multi-divisional, uh, complex, simple platforms need to have that adaptability. And so uh, what we believe in, in creating DAS is let's take great base platforms and provide them to our clients and then build things on top of them that give them great tools. And so for us, what's important to me and I, what's been important to our clients is developing within the tools, using their APIs, using third-party providers, hooking in different things. I mean, I, you know, we just signed up with a, a provider that, that creates uh, Nuix automation software. So if you've ever used uh, Nuix uh, workstation for processing, it's a pretty complex tool. It's not like I'm gonna hop on and just start processing data in Nuix tomorrow. And so we're using an automation software now that basically takes the, that, that process from soup to nuts. So it's more drag and drop. And when we implement that on top of our discovery as a service platform, the ability to process in Nuix and then drop your data into relativity is so nice for clients to say, hey, there's flexibility in the way I process data. There's flexibility in the analytics tool that I use. There's flexibility in the way I archive or store my data. Um, there's even flexibility on where I host. It can be in the, the cloud through Azure or AWS, or it can be on-prem, but in a colo, which is still cloud to me, but it's dedicated and I can touch it. And so that's what we're trying to build. And we're trying to listen to our clients. So we've developed, what we have developed are innovations, right? Things like this drag and drop processing or uh, workflow automations or privilege log builders, uh, discussions for case logs. And so the, the way we've built these things is that our clients have come back to us and said, hey, is there a way to have a, a coding automation? And we're like, not right now, but we'll build it for you. And I think that's what clients are really looking for, right? Everybody knows the platforms that are out there. Okay, there's what, 10 great platforms that, that, that sit maybe at the number one position, all shared. And maybe there's 10 or 15 or 20 others that are right below them, right? That, that, that may not have the same following, but there's parity among what they can all do. So for us, it's about how do we take great platforms and make them better? How do we take all these apps and integrate them so they're more user-friendly, so that clients have choices? So really picking from your standpoint, the best of breed technology and then building on top of that a flexible empowerment to actually apply them easily and quickly in whatever the matter. The, the concept behind the app store was to make it like your smartphone, right? You see an app you want, you click on it, it downloads and you use it. And that's what we've built. Um, so the ability to take uh, an analytics tool and incorporate it into one specific uh, workspace is as easy as that. It's the click of a button. Uh, and that's what we've really tried to do to make it easy for our clients. So, Mark, looking looking ahead, particularly in light of the COVID nineteen pandemic, looking getting out your crystal ball, what what are what are one or two predictions that you would make for e discovery? And then, if you have any, what are one or two predictions you'd make about legal tech more generally? So, for e discovery technology, we've talked a lot about it, but it's accessibility. Um, the accessibility from a uh, a cloud perspective and the tools that we have available at our fingertips. So I think that's, I think that's first. Um, second, we, we spoke a little bit about multi-threaded processes and harnessing the power of the cloud and systems. And so I think that we need to, to stop with some of the arcane uh, processes that we incorporate into e-discovery or even litigation as a whole. Um, we've talked a lot about things happening earlier in the process and use of analytics. Uh, so this is about uh, real uh, usability of software to analyze data earlier in the process. And then in terms of legal tech in general, outside of e-discovery, I, I use the word arcane, right? Sometimes, you know, legal's lagging behind in, in the way the rest of technology works. 
but I'm so excited to really see the application of real AI in some of these applications um, and extending the things that worked in e-discovery to other aspects like contracts or investigations um, or risk assessment. And so I love the fact that the, the programs that we've loved for the last 10, 15 years and how we've utilized them are making their way into legal practice. They're making their way into corporate practice. Uh, they're being used in ways that we've never looked at them previously. And we're really harnessing technology to help our lives and to make legal um, a better practice, right? And we see, uh, you know, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal post headlines are the robots taking over legal practice. And of course, that's never going to happen, but it is changing the way legal practice works. It's changing the role of the lawyer. And I think what we're seeing is service providers, the role of in-house counsel and the role of outside counsel, they're actually becoming much more heightened. And so I think that's what we're going to see the results of technology. It's not a loss of job. It's actually a greater sophistication of our jobs and a greater sophistication of practice where the technology itself serves as a baseline. So I have three routine questions that I ask uh, all of my guests. One is, who is a business leader that you admire, and what are the particular qualities about that business leader that make you admire them? So I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat and have two answers to this question. And at at the risk of sounding like I'm trying to get some sort of promotion, I really admire Troy Gregory, who's the CEO of System One, for for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is he has the ability to understand a business, a situation, a client, an employee, really anything, and very quickly boil it down to its most basic points so we can come up with an action plan. And it's something that's just an incredible skill to be able to see things from such a 30,000 foot perspective, but yet like an eagle's eye sort of hone in on exactly what needs to happen to make things right, to make things better, uh, to solve a situation or to move forward very proactively as a business. And one of the other great things that Troy has done unabashedly is that he has surrounded himself with very smart people. And I know that's going to sound like I'm patting myself on the back, but that's that's really not what this is. But that's what he's done. And he's taught me that lesson about how great business leaders, they don't do everything themselves. They don't know everything. What they do is they surround themselves with great great people who can execute for them and bring ideas to them and be the next generation of leaders in a company. And I said I was going to cheat, so I've got a second person. And this is despite all the stupidity on, on Twitter or Instagram. And But I, I think that Elon Musk is a pretty incredible guy. Here is a guy who, uh, I guess it helps to have a couple billion dollars too, but, but think about what this guy's done. He's challenged major industries, right? Whether it's from banking and payments to automobiles to, to space travel. And he's done it successfully all the way around. I mean, look at Tesla. It's got more than two times the market cap of all of the big three market caps combined. That's incredible. That's crazy. And the stock keeps soaring. And so th these aren't stupid investors. These are smart people. And so he basically looked at issues. He looked at business and he looked at he looked at established ways and he said, you know what? I'm doing it better and I'm and I can and I will. And he believed in himself and he's executed. And so I really admire that. What is the last podcast you listen to, even if it's a guilty pleasure? So my guilty pleasures these days are, are limited to uh, trying to be as uh, short term and mind numbing as possible. So I, I tend to cook and I tend to try to take a swim uh, or watch mindless TV. The one podcast that I do listen to because it's got such varied topics and they're quick hits is TED Talks Daily. And I really love TED Talks Daily because you've got great people talking about interesting topics and in 10, 15 minutes, it's over, right? I'm not committing to a murder mystery. I'm not getting all sad that my data is being stolen and I'm, I'm going to, you know, not be able to get healthcare when I'm 70. So it's, it's, um, I try to, uh, my days are stressful enough, so I do try to uh, find interesting ways of educating myself, and TED Talks Daily I find to be um, just that perfect dose of 
podcast, entertainment, uh, interest, and it's a, a good quick hit. What's the last book you read, fiction or nonfiction, that you would heartily recommend to the listeners since you just couldn't put the book down? Yeah, so it's, a, it's actually a sales book, um, and it's called Gap Selling. I actually have it right here next to me. So Gap Selling, this is not a pitch. I don't like, I didn't write it. It's not mine. But what I loved about it, uh, and the way I really love that it applies was that the author took um, not old concepts, but I think pretty standard concepts in selling and client relationships, and he put a new spin on them. And what I love about it is that in client relationships and in business, we always need to look at how do we reinvent ourselves? How do we look at our clients through a, through a different lens? And how do we interpret what our clients are really asking for? And where do they want to be, right? Putting them first. And so for me, I'm in front of clients all the time. And I'm also in, in charge of really thinking about the strategic growth of our business. So for me, understanding how to really um, speak to clients and hear what they're saying and understand where they want to go, not just in a sales cycle, not because I want to sell them $10 worth of hosting, but ultimately, where does their business want to take them? Um, helps me better understand what our salespeople need to do, what our client service teams need to do, what our development teams need to do, and where we need to invest as a company or pivot and shift. And so the, the book's been great because it's given me a new light and a new perspective on speaking with clients. What's one great question that I should have asked that I didn't, Mark? I know you, everyone thinks out there that service providers all hate each other and we try to stab each other in the back. The reality is, is that we're a pretty close-knit community. We all know each other and we talk probably a lot more uh, than you would think. And especially in the C-suite, um, we share a lot of war stories. And one of the questions that I always ask when I get a chance to speak with them is how are you changing the way you conduct business in light of COVID? So that, and it's not always based around what clients are asking for, it's what, what are we doing as an organization? Right? What are we doing to, um, to continue to get out there? Right? There's no more conferences. Uh, there's no more face-to-face -face meetings. Uh, marketing is, is much more difficult. Selling is much more difficult. Uh, having your, your employees continue to feel engaged. And this is beyond Zoom, right? Because, okay, we all have our Zoom calls or our Teams calls. Um, but, but what are we doing to continue that engagement, to keep people connected to everybody, new clients, existing clients, employees, and to keep the company going in, in a good direction? And believe it or not, the, uh, most of the folks are, are pretty open about what it is they're doing. And, and interestingly, I haven't gotten one um, same answer or approach, but that's something that I always am, am curious about. So hopefully you ask your next guest about that. Thanks for joining us on the Lean Discovery Applied Podcast, Season 1, Sitting with the C-Suite. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. You can also visit us online at www.leandiscoveryblog.com, where we have additional content and videos of the interviews. Lean Discovery Applied is hosted by Clinton Sanko, eDiscovery Officer of Baker Donaldson. This program is not intended as an endorsement and does not constitute legal advice. Thanks to Baker Donaldson, a leader in innovative legal services, for supporting this podcast. To the guests and to you, the listener. See you next time.